Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On today's episode, I interview David Leach. He is an editor at Titan Comics, and he is editing the book, Fighting American. Fighting American was developed by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon back in the 1950s. In fact, it's one of the first independent comic books. Well, the Fighting American is back. This is not a reboot. This is truly a sequel to the original series. Both Fighting American and Speedboy find themselves in the present day. The next arc, Ties That Bind, is being released on March 7th and written by Gordon Rennie, with art by Andy Tong. So David is going to talk about how he got into comic books, working as a penciler, an inker, a colorist, a letterer, a writer, an editor. He's done it all. David is going to talk about the other books he's edited for Titan, working on licensed properties, and what some of his favorite books are that he has in his collection. Now, when you listen to this interview, don't think that all interviews are this easy. By that, I mean you won't hear a lot of my voice during the interview. Believe me, I'm there. I just sat back and let David talk, and talk he can. He had a lot to say and share, and I was not about to get in his way, and I'm glad I didn't. It was a very fun and informative conversation, so we went way beyond just talking about Fighting American, which was great. So you're going to learn a lot about comic books, making comic books, and about working with licensed properties, and a lot about David. And if you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review Creator Talks on iTunes. So now begins my interview with editor David Leach, here now on Creator Talks. David, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, Christopher. Thank you. It's a real treat to have you here on Creator Talks. And uh, what is your official job title and responsibility at Titan? Uh, I'm an editor, a lowly editor. And that's it. (laughs) That does cover a lot of areas. Sure does. And we'll get to that. And I will get to the primary reason why we're here today, to talk about championing the return of Simon and Kirby's Fighting American. But first, I want to discuss your comic book work and experience. You have a tremendous amount. You have a lot of hands-on experience with comic books as a published writer, penciler, inker, colorist, letter, all of that. So let me start way back at the beginning. Your first work experience as a ghost artist for Bob Godfrey on Henry's Cat, a children's program on BBC. Yep, that's right. Actually, this year will be my 31st year of working in comics. So I've been working in comics ever since I left college. I left college in 86, got my first job on January the 2nd, 1987. And the reason I know that date so so clearly is that's the, um, <laughs> one of the first people I went to see after leaving art college was Bob Godfrey. And I got, I got to meet him because I was given an introduction by another cartoonist uh, who's now sadly dead called Mel Kalman. And he used to do, he used to have this gallery in London called the Cartoon Gallery. And I was looking for work and I just left art college and I wanted to be a cartoonist. Uh, and I went to see uh, Mel and he looked at my photo and he goes, well, I can't, I can't do anything for you, but I know a man who might be able to help you. Get in contact with Bob Godfrey. Here's his details and tell him I sent you. So I signed up at Bob's uh, studio and I got through to his secretary and said, oh, hello, I'll speak to Bob Godfrey. And she put me through. And then she came back and she said, I'm sorry, could you tell me what this is about? And I said, well, I've just spoken to Mel Cameron, and Mel Cameron says that Bob Godfrey should see me. So she goes away, and a couple of moments later, Bob, Bob himself comes on the phone, and he says to me, uh, hello, Bob Godfrey here, I'm told I should see you. And I said, uh, yes, that's what Mel Cameron said. And he goes, well, you better come in, didn't you? It was a bit of a cockney, was, uh, was Bob. So I went to see him, and I showed him, showed him my work, and uh, he said, look, I love your work, but there's nothing I've got for you, but I'll bear you in mind. And this, this was around about September time. And now the next bit you're not going to believe, but this is, this is absolutely true. On around about 
Christmas Eve or around about the time that companies have the Christmas parties, I get a phone call and uh, I get a phone call from this drunk old man. I don't instantly recognize him because I haven't spoken to him in a long time. Anyway, he goes like this. Hello, David, it's me. I went, oh, hi, how are you? And he goes, I'm great. Yeah, listen, are you still looking for a job? And I went, well, yes. And he goes, fantastic. Come and start working for me. January the 2nd. Have a good Christmas. Bye. And that was it. So I worked out at his bog. It didn't take too long to work it out. So on January the 2nd, I turn up. And so London was completely empty. And I turn up and I get to his studio and I buzz. And this, this is in Covent Garden in Neil Street. He had a wonderful old uh, gallery, not gallery. He had a studio in one of the old warehouses in, in, in Covent Garden. And he was right upstairs on the fifth floor. So I worked my way all the way up to the top of the fifth floor. And he's the only one in the building. There's no one else in the building because it's January the 2nd. Everyone else is on holiday. And he looks up from his drawing board and he's dressed in cycling lycra because he always used to cycle everywhere. And this is a man who is, while I work for him, he turned 65. So he, he reached retirement age. So he looks up from his drawing board and he goes, who are you? And I said, I'm David Leach. And he said, what do you want? I said, well, you told me I should come and start working for you. When did I do that? I said, Christmas Eve. He went, oh, and he looks around, looks around the studio and he goes, well, that drawing board's free. Why didn't you start there? And that's how I got my first job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I worked for him for a year and I was his ghost artist. And I learned more in that one year working for him as his ghost artist than I did at four years of art school. I mean, I always knew I wanted to be a cartoonist, but by having to draw his style of drawing, and he had a very, very sort of basic, very rudimentary style, but it certainly it taught me loads. And it was also working on a, on a, you know, a weekly deadline because I, I was doing full-page um, comic strips for kids' comics. I was doing a newspaper strip. I was doing, um, there was a, the Halifax, which is a building society we have in the UK. They had their own Sabres magazine. I was doing a strip for them. Anything that had Henry's cap on it, I was doing it. And I was given the scripts, and I, I, would, I would pencil them all out, uh, you know, I'd draw up all the pages and, and, you know, panel placements and all that sort of stuff. Then he would do the inking, and after a while he gave me the inking to do as well, and then I would do all the colouring. So I was literally doing everything, and I did that for a year. And it was, like I say, it was... Um, yeah, yeah, there were so many good things about it. A, it was my first job. I was paid cash in hand. And uh, at one point, I, and now this doesn't sound like anything, but you've got to remember, I, I was like in my early 20s and I was getting £90 a week cash in hand, which was an incredible amount of money. I was still living at home with my parents. So my travelling cost me about £5 a week. I used to give my mum £10 a week. And Bob's studio was opposite a comic shop. So you can, you can imagine where the rest of my weekly money went. And I did that for a year. And, it, and it's still, I, I consider it to be the best job I ever had. And just in terms of sheer spending power, it, it was insanity. Because back in those days, if, you, if I walked into Forbidden Planet or a comic shop in those days and I had a pound, I could buy four comics for a pound because they were all 25p each. You know? And mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, was just, it was glorious. It was glorious. Anyway, after a year of that, I went freelance and I decided that I was going to conquer the world as a cartoonist. Um, and there was a kid's comic that came out. Which I, I've always wanted to do humor comics. I've never been interested in, in doing superhero comics as an artist. It, it never interested me. But making people laugh has always been the thing I, I, I love doing the most. Um, so this, this kid's comic came out. Um, and now we have a comic over here in the UK called Viz, which is an adult comic, uh, which is just fantastic. It's incredibly rude. It's, it's very, very silly. Uh, it's launched characters like um, Fat Slags and um, Watch a Merry Man on the Telly. They're all very silly sort of, you know, gag stuff. And there was a company called IPC who wanted to bring out a kid's version of, of, of this, and they did. They called it Oink. So I, when I saw the first issue of Oink, I just knew I had to be in it. I don't know why, because British kids' comics up until this point, the one thing they all have in common is they're not funny. I mean, that's the weird thing. <laughs> you read this stuff, it never makes you laugh. But, and yet we all read them as kids. And, and the weird thing is in this country, when you start off reading British comics, you start off on the junior titles, move up to the humor titles, and then you move on to things like 2000D or or the war comics, or if you're a girl, you, you'd move on to things like Bunty or Diane or all the Misty and all the other, all the other girls' titles. So there was a, 
a definite hierarchy of comics that you move through as you got older. But I, I bypassed all the, all the serious stuff and obviously stuck to the humor. So when it comes along, I knew I had to be in it. I just, I just know it in my bones. This one is, I can't even tell you why now, but back then it was the most important thing in my life. I got in contact with the uh, editor-in-chief of the humor titles, and he wouldn't give me an introduction until I did a four-week tryout for another kid's comic. So uh, I think basically they needed an artist, and I, I, you know, they saw my stuff and decided to give me a go. So I started doing, I did a four-book pull-out section for another comic. Um, and the strip was called Brad, Brad Habit and Phil Fit, and it was, it was a typical thing. Um, Brad Habit was a great big fat kid, and Phil Fit was a skinny little um, sports nerd, and they basically had constant battles. You know, It's a typical British thing. Um, I did that for four weeks, and then he gave me an introduction to Oink, and I sent him my strip to Oink, which was um, Psycho Gran. So she was my first professional cartoon character, and they brought her on the spot, which was just, for me, just like, wow, I can't believe it. So I started doing that. I did that for, I think, two years. I did, um, I did that strip, and I started doing other stuff as well. You know, I was like a cartoonist for hire. So uh, I know this, 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 sounds, uh, this sounds very sort of um, unbelievable, too. I didn't realize when I started out that you could get paid to be a writer and as an artist. I assumed that when you read a comic strip, because in the UK, strips were never credited. I assumed that uh, everyone did everything. That just made total sense to me. So uh, I did all, did all my own stuff. Um, and so I did that for a while. And then, um, uh, after Oink, Oink ended after sadly short of two years. Um, and Psychogram appeared in, in like a summer special, two of the annuals and about 17 of the actual regular comics. But the weird thing was that she seemed to really resonate with people. So, um, she, she would appear on the covers drawn by other artists. And, uh, I didn't realize that, that, that she was as popular as, she, as, as she's turned out to be, which has been quite a nice surprise for me. Uh, after Oink, uh, another British comic came out, which was um, Pat Mills's uh, Toxic, which was the comic to rival 2000D, or at least it was attempted to, and it was edited by Dan, Ad- Dan Abnett, and his title was uh, Toxic, uh, Comics Throws Up, uh, instead of Grows Up. And uh, I was working with another cartoonist called Banks. Uh, he's, a, he's a newspaper cartoonist who I met on Oink, and he did a brilliant strip called Burt the Alien, Smelly Alien. And we collaborated on a strip called The Driver, uh, which was uh, truly horrific. Uh, we've got to remember, all this was drawn in a very silly cartoony style, but w- The Driver concerned a, uh, an American truck driver, uh, just known as The Driver, who's like about seven feet tall, massive and totally bald, and he drove a five-mile-long truck filled with toxic waste and, and debris, including a, a truckload of debris from the Challenger space shuttle. And all the story was was him driving literally through the middle of middle America, including one episode where he drove through a town to use it as a break, uh, just so he could dump his entire load in Meteor Crater, Arizona. That was the story. And the great thing about the strip was you either loved it or you loathed it. And if you loathed it, you loathed it with a passion. Uh, we got into trouble with it. We got uh, the police visited the offices of the comic because of <laughs> one line of dialogue we wrote in the comic, which was drink my piss in hell. They didn't like that. Um, <laughs> It's, it's an astonishing strip, um, but it is, it is, it is very much a, a Marmite moment. You either love it or you hate it. That then got us noticed by uh, an editor in uh, Marvel Comics, uh, Rob Tokar, who was editing Toxic Crusaders at the time. And he asked me and Banks if we'd like to write an episode of Toxic Crusaders. And we said, yeah, we'd love to. So we wrote uh, one episode of Toxic Crusaders. And while we were writing the script, uh, he said to us, listen, would you guys like to draw it? And we went, yeah, we'd love to. So that's how we ended up writing and drawing our very own Marvel comic, which if anyone's interested in rushing out and buying it and bumping the price up, it's issue eight of uh, Toxic uh, Crusaders with a cover by, um, oh, I can't remember his name now. Oh, that will that'll haunt me on my deathbed. I'll groan his name out and people will wonder what I'm talking about before I die. It'll be my rosebud moment. I can't remember <laughs> his name now. Keith, Keith somebody. Keith somebody. No, not Keith. 
Who knows? Who cares? I do, but I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, after that, Marvel then said, hey, listen, that was great fun. Do you want to do a four-book miniseries of Toxic Crusaders? You can do anything you like, but you can't use that. You can't have any blood. You can, you can make it as gross and disgusting as you like. And we went, oh, that's amazing. And once again, you can't draw it. And then they said, oh, we changed the minds. Now you can draw it. So we went to him and we started working on our first full book miniseries for Marvel. And we really thought, wow, this is it. You know, this will be brilliant. We'll get, you know, get this out. And, and we should hopefully have got a, a nice foothold in America. And then sadly, Marvel US uh, imploded. This has been you know, back in the, the, in the 90s when they had that big sort of collapse. And overnight, they canceled their entire range of TV time titles. Everything went overnight, just, just gone in an instant. And so we went from position of, you know, working on a full miniseries and all, all that entails and getting a nice page rate, not, not massive, but enough to, you know, make it uh, feasible, to nothing. And our editor, um, he left. Uh, Rob went off to do other things. And so we were back to, back to square one. And, and as you probably know, as in comics, once you've lost your editor, that's it. You have to start all over again and, and climb up the greasy pole. Um, so I was doing work at the time for Marvel UK. I was also doing coloring. Uh, and in those days it, it was all, all done with, um, with hand, uh, handings, you know, like, uh, watercolor inks and, and you, you'd, um, you'd paint up a page and it'd be 15 pounds and you'd have to mark it up with, uh, with numbers. So for example, if you were going to do blood red, that'd be, um, or no, say, let's say, cause that's going to be complicated. Let's, uh, let's do not fire engine red. That'd be a hundred, hundred, so hundred yellow, hundred magenta. So you, you paint up the thing and then you mark up all the colors. And for that, you'd write, uh, y100 dash uh, y uh, m100 and that means 100 yellow 100 magenta. God, I'm rambling already. Uh, it's all the drugs I'm on. That's what makes you like this. That's fine. Um, I will slow down in a minute. I might even take a breath. That'd be unusual. <laughs> anyway, uh, once once the Marvel US stuff had ended, I walked into the offices of uh, Paul, uh, Paul McCartney, Paul Neary, who was the editor in chief at the time, and said, "Could I have a job, please?" And uh, he sort of said, why? And so, well, because I've spent eight years working in comics and um, I'd like to be an editor. And he went, okay. So I got my second job. <laughs> and I worked for Marvel UK for three years. And I think it was three, nearly four years. And then I went freelance again and I worked as a freelancer. By this point, after the collapse of uh, Marvel and, and the loss of Toxic Crusaders, I sort of decided to stop drawing. I'd had enough because it was just getting too difficult. And I, I was finding it very hard to actually make a living doing it. I mean, I was picking up work, but, you know, I think, I think on average I'd make probably 10 grand a year. And so I, I was living off or sponging off my, my, my uh, lovely wife, who I've been married to for 31 years, by the way. Just want to put that on. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Actually, it'll be it'll be we've been together thirty one years, but we've been we'll be we've been married twenty seven years this year. So twenty eight years this year. Good grief. There we are. Uh, so that's, that's a call out to to uh, Petra. <laughs> anyway, right. So I I, I got myself a proper job. Gave up drawing comics. So I never draw another comic again in, in my life, which obviously uh, proved to be uh, a lie. Uh, worked for Marvel for four years. Went freelance. Spent uh, about a year, two years working. Um, Oh, you know, different different publishers. They were BBC. I worked for Panini. I worked for um, Fleetway. Uh, all sorts of people. You know, just just doing that sort of stuff uh, and writing strips and everything. Um, I wrote um, there was a Spider-Man newspaper strip in the UK. I wrote that. I wrote a Ren and Stimpy newspaper strip. That that was a real challenge because you weren't allowed to do jokes. You had to do funny stuff, but it couldn't have punchlines, which is a real challenge. Uh, so after those two, went freelance, and then I decided uh, just as I turned. I think when I was turning 40, I think it was 40, or was it 30? I can't remember. I decided to go back to, yes, it was 40. I decided to go back to university and I decided to retrain and I decided I was going to move out of comics and get into an industry where I'd be, I'd be uh, secure 
and I decided to study animation. <laughs> but I wasn't going to do this newfangled uh, uh, 3D animation. I, I was going to be a traditional animator. So I went back to university or college and I studied um, animation. And I, I left the course with a distinction, which I'm quite pleased about, and was promptly snapped up by, um, by the games industry. Ended up a, a company called Codemasters, um, who do lots of sports sims. And uh, I, I did this, I did a 30 second, uh, my last piece of animation was a 30 second snow, uh, skateboarder uh, doing tricks. And um, it's a, it a gag as well. He basically, you know, I think the thing was that he was doing, he's doing all these tricks and he's trying to impress three judges. But every trick he does, he only gets two nines and a one. And he gets more and more angry. So he tries an insanely difficult uh, trick and it goes horribly wrong and he crashes. And the final score, the two judges who gave him nine give him one, but the last judge who only gave him one gives him a nine. And so his broken arm rises out of his, his body with a thumbs up sign. That, that was mine. Anyway, there, there was the, <laughs> not, the, uh, the, on the games, the, the, the um, art director saw my uh, showreel and he was working on a snowboarding game. And he decided that since I could do skateboarders, I could probably do snowboarders. So I was hired to work on a, on a snowboarding game for Codemasters. And I spent four years at Codemasters um, as an uh, in-game animator. Um, where I had to learn 3D animation. And I ended up, the, the snowboarding game got cancelled after a year, and then I got moved over to a football game, which is a shame because I detest football, can't stand football. Uh, I ended up spending, I think it was two years, maybe three years working on a, on a football game where I would do all the in-game cutscenes. So I would, I, would, I would have to blend motion capture. Uh, and the only fun part came where I, we, would, <laughs> we got to animate the uh, ponytails of uh, footballers because the, it, it, it was a management training uh, football game. Uh, and so all, all, all the games, all the actual games were actual, uh, you'd watch them. So it was all worked out by the computer itself. But your, your job was managing the teams. And so all the teams feature every, every football player in the entire uh, UK divisions. And so we'd have to animate um, ponytails for all of the different models, just in case any of the, any of the football players had ponytails. And then we had, to, we had to animate all of it um, during the cutscenes to make it look more realistic. I'd have to animate all the camera moves and I'd have to animate um, all the um, mouth uh, lip sync. But there wasn't any dialogue, so we would just make up lip sync to go with it. I would always do the lip sync so that they were swearing because it amused me greatly. But unfortunately, um, <laughs> it got spotted. <laughs> And so I had to redo it all, which is very funny. Uh, but it amused me. I'm always, I, I like, I like, uh, I like to amuse. It, it, it tickles me to do things like that, you know, being a bit naughty, being, you know, it doesn't, I, often it doesn't work well. I often get in trouble for it and I'm, I'm, I'm heavily penalized. Anyway, after four years of that, I got made redundant um, um, from uh, Codemasters and then I, I ended up working uh, as a storyboard artist in the animation industry. And I ended up working for a small British animating company called Chase Animation and uh, they brought me in uh, to storyboard and they found out that I was a writer because I, you know, I used to write comic scripts. And so they just said offhand, would you like to write one of our, one of our shows? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. That'd be fantastic. So they gave me a show which never had a title because they couldn't work out a title for it. I ended up writing four of those shows and then I ended up storyboarding them and then they moved me on to another thing. Um, the thing is, there was obviously something happening at the, at the animation company that we were never privy to. But the, the guy who owned it, I can't remember his name, he, he one day came home after Christmas having seen Happy Feet, you know the uh, 3D animated film about the penguins? Oh, sure. And he, he announced that from now on the uh, animation company would do everything in 3D and so he brought 3D equipment for everybody. So all of the 2D animation got thrown out. We all had to start again using 3D. So quite, quite an incredible you know, change around. So I went from being a storyboard artist to being a writer and then they asked me if I'd like to be a development producer and start developing uh, show formats and I said, oh, I'd love to, that'd be fantastic. Um, 
So that's what I started doing, and it was heaven. And then after six months of that, I got taken out for a walk along the Thames where I was told, look, we've run out of money. We're very sorry, but we can't afford to employ you anymore. And so I was, I was <laughs> back to square one. Uh, and as luck would have it, uh, Titan Books were advertising for a, a new post. They were looking, uh, not Titan Comics, who I work for now, but Titan Books. And they were looking for a graphics novel editor uh, to work um, in for Titan Books. So I applied and I got the job, which is, which is great. I've been there now for the last, uh, I've had just, yesterday was my 10th anniversary. I've been at Titan for 10 years. So I finally started working at Titan and I, I started up in the books department where I would edit collections of things like um, uh, lots, of, lots of old British comic strips that... Um, Probably a lot of your listeners won't won't know, but things like um, Roy the Rovers, um, I, and I would I did uh, collections of some. I, I had to read ten years worth of Roy. No, in fact, not ten years. How many years? Forty years worth of Roy the Rovers comics, which was just heaven. Heaven. Got paid to sit there and read comics for like a couple of weeks, and I found the best material from the seventies and the best material from the eighties, and then I did a collection of the best of Roy the Rovers annuals, and that was that was great fun. So I was doing all these old vintage collections. Um, and uh, doing also things like uh, a Nemi, which is another newspaper strip. And I, I was working. My last book for, for, for Titan Books was a Dan Dare book, one of the old vintage books. I think it was volume 13, I think it was. And then I got moved to uh, Titan Comics. And I started off working for Titan Comics on things like uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, which is a reprint title. Uh, where we would take all the comic strips and I'd have to write new material, new features and everything. Uh, and that then, so I've been there ever since, and that sort of progressed onwards. So I then started working on the Wallace and Gromit newspaper strip, which was a daily newspaper strip in the Sun newspaper, which is the UK's highest circulation newspaper. And that, that was terrifying to go from a monthly title to going from producing seven comic strips uh, a week for a newspaper was was phenomenal because the amount of pressure you're under is staggering. You know, you're you want to try and you want to try and get ahead. By the end of it, end of it, I'd managed to sort of claw back time, and I had, I think, by the end of the strip, I, I was four weeks in hand. So there'd always be a four week gap between finishing one and delivering one. Uh, but that that was basically you know having to commission writers, uh, pencilers, inkers, colorists, and then I would do all the lettering myself. But then having to get everything approved at those stages and doing that on on that sort of turnaround was just phenomenal. Um, after that, God, what happened after that? Uh, that's, that's almost leads me in, into, into now. So, uh, when Titan Comics started doing, uh, the American comics, I'd been editing, uh, Lenore, which is Roman Dirge's comic. And I still do. Um, I've been, uh, we've managed to produce, I think, I think 11 or 12 issues so far. And, and Roman's currently working on a new issue, uh, which is, which is great fun, but Roman's very busy. He, he works, uh, he works on, um, uh, one of the cable shows, animated shows. He's, he's one of their chief artists on that. Oh, one of their yeah, one of their artists on that. Uh, so I mean, uh, I was doing Lenore, and then I started working on new comics for the, the U.S. market. And I started off on Blacklist, uh, working with. Um, oh gosh, my my brain is dead this morning. I've forgotten all, all these people's names that should be in my brain. I've forgotten. I ended up working with one of the writers from the, from the Blacklist show, and we worked on two series of, of the Blacklist comics. So, uh, two four four part miniseries. Um, and that was good fun. And then that led on to doing uh, where I'm now. God blimey. And then today, um, one of the things I've edited recently, there was the Hammer Comics, um, The Mummy, written by Peter Milligan. There was um, Captain Kronos, written by Dan Abnett, drawn by Tom Mandrake. That just finished. Issue four came out, I think, around about Christmas time or January time. Um, I, I know it sounds like I don't know what I'm doing, um, but the, these dates, everything becomes a blur. So you know you've got your stuff out. Once you've got it out, you move on to your next thing. So you tend not to remember what you've just done. So I've been doing Dan Dare, Fighting American, and uh, also um, something else. 
the prisoner. <laughs> and while I'm doing all that, I'm also doing, I also do all of the old vintage reprints of things like Flash Gordon. Um, I've done, I've done four issues worth of Flash Gordon. That's been reprinting all the old Dan Barry stuff. And also the, uh, earlier than that. Um, and that, that means going out and finding the assets. I did a spectacular, uh, collection of Betty Boop. Uh, I did the almost the only near complete collection of Betty Boop material in existence, and that that was a, and such a wonderful job, but so challenging. We actually managed to source all the strips um, from the newspapers, you know, the actual tear sheets, and we hunt them down. And uh, there was there was one thing I, I put together a collection, a near complete collection of all the daily newspaper strips, and that that involved me tracking down a collector in Italy who spoke no English and I spoke no Italian to buy his collection of Betty Boot newspaper strips from the 1930s. He still had the, 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 the cutouts, the actual tear sheets cut from the newspaper. And so we had to negotiate that. And so, you know, so that putting that together was, was an absolute joy. It took a long time, but it was a real labor of love. And all this stuff, I'm sort of, I'm also um, like restoring the artwork as well. I have to go in and clean them all up. That's part of my job. But also something I absolutely adore doing. I love you know, um, restoring artwork. So yeah, Flash Gordon, uh, Betty Boop, uh, and also Mandrake the Magician, which I'm deeply proud of. I'm just, just finished uh, volume four of Mandrake the Magician. We've moved on to Fred Frederick. So I did two books worth with Phil Davis. There was the Dailies and the Sundays collection. Then I moved on to um, Fred Frederick. There's been a Dailies and the Sundays version of that as well. And I've, I've, I think it's not just doing the actual collections, but it's also finding the, the bonus material. So my last Mandrake book, I, I got in contact with, with, there was a magician back in the 1930s called um, Mandrake the Magician, who was a real magician. And he was out at the same time as the Mandrake strip first appeared, but he came first. So he, he became friendly with, with, um, with Phil Davis and with um, Lee Falk. And they were happy for him to be Mandrake the Magician. So they would promote him and he would promote them. So it was like a symbiotic relationship. He ended up getting married, the magician did, to a woman called Nada. It's also the same name as the, <laughs> the Mandrake character in the coin strip. So they both got married to women called Nada. Uh, I got in contact with, uh, with Mandrake, Leon Mandrake's uh, son, who's called Lon Mandrake, and he wrote me a, a biography of his father for the next collection, so the one that's coming out now. But that was wonderful to actually you know, connect with these guys and you know, talk to them and, and be able to do that. And you know, I'm hoping that I'm giving fans of Mandrake, you know, a glimpse into, you know, an extra that they would never have, have thought possible, you know, an actual, here's a review of the real Mandrake, the magician. Uh, on top of all that, I also do things like Hagar the Horrible. I do collections of Hagar the Horrible. I've done a shoe collection, a croc selection, a best of those. Um, and that's it. There we are. That's everything. So nice talking to you. Bye. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's all you God. got. <laughs> that's all I've got. That's all I've got. So, uh, yeah. Well, let me see. At the moment, though, just to, so Dan, there's uh, the first four issues have come to an end and we're waiting until the next uh, the next four. Um, Captain Kronos, the four issues came to an end and we're hoping to do a second series. We're just, you know, waiting to, and talking about doing that. So I talked to uh, Tom Mandrake about that and uh, I really love the series. I just got the fourth issue a couple of weeks ago. So I hope that does come oh, back lovely. for another run. Yeah. I have to say, uh, hand on the heart, that that was the most fun comic I've ever worked. The, the easiest comic I've ever worked on. I mean, a Tom is is just such a, a gentleman, and he's so professional, and he's just so good. It, it was uh, the art. The hairs of my arms would stand up and, and end every time I got artwork in from him. And I was so thrilled to think I was the first person to see it outside of his family. Was Hammer fairly easy to work with on the licensing for that? 
Oh yeah, hammer. Yeah, very very easy. I mean, uh, hammer hammer. Uh, uh, what they would do is, I, I would I would uh, come up with a list of writers and send send them a list of writers, and then they would choose writers they wish to work with because the, the hammer were very keen on not just developing comics, but trying to see whether they could develop other material off the back of the comics or more IP. So they were very hands on when it came to uh, um, writers they would want, and what I would do when it came to artists, I would select artists and send them to them. Uh, so when it came to um, um, Chronos. Mandrake was an artist that I'd been using to do covers on The Mummy, and I, I thought his covers were extraordinary, just, just superb. And he'd, oh, I'd also, I've also missed up Anna Dracula. How could I miss that one off? Yeah, Anna Dracula did that one. That was fabulous. Anyway, um, he'd done covers for Anna Dracula. Um, and so I put him forward as the artist on, on uh, Kronos, and they loved him. And uh, Abnett, Dan Abnett, he loved him too. So it, it, was, it was very easy. And once we had him in place, uh, uh, Dan's scripts were... I think I only made one change to to Dan's script, and that was giving uh, Carla the uh, the knuckle duster, the um, the silver knuckle duster. That's the only thing I added to it. And beyond the odd occasional, um, you know, missed full stop or something, or a word spelt wrong, I, I didn't change anything of Dan's work. I mean, Dan is. Uh, it's weird because Dan used to be my editor and then I became his editor back in the days when I worked for Marvel UK. And now I was his editor again on, um, on, um, Kronos, but he, he was once again, just a delight to work with. I mean, the thing is, some of these guys are so professional that, that working with them is an absolute delight. You know, they deliver their work. That's it. You ask them for changes. They make them or if They don't like the, the changes. They won't make them, you know, but they explain their reasons and all that. And it's just, it's just heaven. You, you don't get phone calls saying, oh, you know, my pet cat's just been run over by my grandmother. I need a day off or something like that. It doesn't happen. They just get on with it and deliver their stuff. So it, it's a joy. So that's one of my, one of my most delightful experiences of working on a licensed product. It really was just totally heaven. <laughs> I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, ultimately you did work on simon and kirby's fighting american and you you brought that back i mean uh including the past issues too as a, as a hardback tell me about yes. working with the licensees for that that's lovely I, I i get to work with um with the families of the kirby and simon estates and so uh when i when i send things off for approval i have to make sure that i include all seven members of, of both estates um and they're, they're great i mean i think initially uh, initially um uh it you have to you have to develop a relationship with these guys, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I try very hard. Um, I find it very helpful to to a uh, be very honest, be very 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 friendly, uh, and try and be as as uh, politeness helps as well. But you just try and develop a, a, a relationship. You, you you make sure they learn that they can trust you. And once they can do that, once they understand what your vision is, then I have I have a vision for all my titles. I have I have an idea. I have a I have a goal to work for. You know. I mean, there's always there's always method by my madness when we first had the license we'd already been doing or titan books had already uh, published the jack kirby you know the jack kirby stuff and they'd, they'd done uh, fighting american in the jack kirby superheroes book and i was asked if i'd like to work on the uh, on fighting american and i said yeah, i'd love to so one of the one of the jobs that we do here as an editor is that we have to we have to write the initial pitch that will get us the license to do these stuff so i have to go away and sit down and write up my story pitches so i have to you know do a proper synopsis and all the rest so i created this whole this whole backstory the, the idea was we want to do fighting american we want him in the present how do you bring him into the present so it was like oh okay so uh i went away and i wrote i wrote this pitch that brought him into the present and uh, it got rejected uh, because it was too dark and uh, and too grim it, it was quite serious it was quite uh, i mean I, I was really pleased it had some great moments in it things that, that made me that made my you know the hairs my arms stick up i thought wow there's a there's one particular bit in particular which i, I absolutely love which didn't happen but it, it was a shame because it would have i think it, it, it would have been a totally different comic it, it was the idea that, that in in the present um 
And this, this is great. This, you've got to remember, this was written at least 18 months before Trump was even a candidate. So I'd written a story where there was this crazy president uh, who had just uh, changed the constitution so he could stay in power for a third term. Uh, he was... Um, he just revoked all the gun laws, so made made gun crime illegal. He'd also just indentured the entire U.S. population, so basically everybody was a slave, and they had to pay off their indentureship. Uh, apart from the very rich elite who could live in a, uh, in uh, in gated communities, safe uh, from paramilitary police. So the police were going around rounding up all the all the guns of people, and the story starts with them arriving at at a, at a cabin in the middle of the woods. Uh, where this old man, big, big, strong, muscular old man with a white beard and a tartan coat, he walks out of the forest, he lives in the cabin, and he's carrying, a, he's carrying his rifle, hunting rifle, and he's, he's got a, the body of a dead deer over his shoulder. And the police turn up and they say, uh, we, need, we need your weapon, give us your weapon. And he says, you're only taking my gun out, you prize it from my cold, dead hands. So they shoot and kill him, and they go and get his guns. And once they do this, this, this younger man walks out of the forest, and they say, we're really sorry, we, we, we had to shoot your father. And he says, that wasn't my father, that was my son. And this is Fighting American. And he's been living in the woods for the last 60 years. He's had a family and everything because he gave up on society back in the 1950s and went to live on his own. And he, whilst he was living on his own, he, he built up a relationship and he met someone and fell in love and he had a child. So he's facing the age of the day. And so he, but the idea is, is he sees what happened to America and he decides that he's going to do something about it. And so uh, the idea was to call it Fighting American, Fighting America. But it, it was deemed way too dark. And, and I sort of thought, yeah, you've probably got a point. This, this, this is much, you know, way, perhaps way too serious for, for the original Jack Kirby character, which, you know, if you read the originals, and I have done loads of times, there's that real element of fun about them. There's that real element of sort of, um, uh, they're, co- they're, they're, they're comedies, practically, you know. I mean, he's, they're fighting the Red Menace and all, all the villains are like batshit crazy. Uh, so I went away and I rethought it, and the the idea was was just was just let's just let's just bring in from the fifties. This is sticking right in the middle of America right now. Let's let's there'd be nothing clever. And reading through the comics, I discovered this character called Dial Twister, who is this who is this inventor. And one of the stories he invents this thing called the the, the uh, uh, a time twister, which is a box he wears in his chest with a single dial in the middle, and by twisting the dial he can travel through time. And that was just like, well, there we are then. I've just brought him into the present and I, I haven't done anything with it. You know, it's just, it's just, it, just, it just made sense. So the idea was is that Fighting American jumps through a portal and bang, you slap in the middle of the 21st century. But he's from the 1950s. And, and that was it. So uh, everyone liked that and we, we submitted it. And um, both families said they loved it. They, they liked the humor of it. They felt it captured the original thing. And it meant also, one of the things we wanted to do was uh, Simon and Kirby's original villains were brilliant, crazy, double header and, and uh, Poison Ivan. These are, these are really crazy characters. So it was just a great way of bringing all, all those characters from the past and sticking them right in the present. So once we got that in place, we then, you know, I would have went off and um, I thought Gordon Rennie because I, I was a fan of Gordon's work. Oddly enough, he and I had worked together back in my days on Marvel UK where I'd edited, and he won't like me saying this, but he actually wrote stories for me for Rugrats, uh, which he doesn't, he doesn't mention anymore, but he did. Uh, and I was his editor <laughs> on Rugrats. And I really loved his sense of humor because he has an incredibly dry sense of, I mean, really dry. It, it's like dust. I love that. I love that about him. And uh, I just thought that, that it, and also the stuff he'd done for 2000 AD, that there was, there was stuff he'd done there, which I loved. I love that. Uh, especially in his dread stuff, there was a real, you could, you know, it wasn't punch, punch, uh, gag stuff. There was a real humor to it and, and his dialogue really. And I, that's what I loved about him. So, um, I got him on board and he, he was really, you know, he liked the pitch. And so he, he took what I, you know, the bare bones of what, what I'd sort of come up with and he ran with it and he just sort of, uh, you know, took it in, in, in directions I, I hadn't thought of. And, um, that was it really. And, uh, the rest was, uh, was fighting America, which I'm currently working on issue. We're doing this as, as, um, 
we did the first four issues uh, as the, that we, we, we brought out as a miniseries. Now we're working on the second four issue miniseries, uh, and of which I'm working on um, issue one is just going to uh, production at the minute, and I'm working on issue two of the second arc. Uh, and we, so we've got plans. We've got you know lots of great plans for it. We're going. We're going to. Uh, um, I don't want to give too much away, but we're going to start exploring the rest of the uh, the Kirbyverse and the other sort of crazy characters. So I, I think I, I should always point out that. I should say it's Simon and Kirby because, you know, you, you can't separate those guys. I mean, you know, the work they did on, on the Fighting American was just sublime. The work they did together was, was wonderful. So it's, um, you know, trying to bring more of their villains, more of their other, perhaps try and bring more of this other superheroes into the Fighting American world. We're sort of, you know, we're, we're thinking of what to do next. It's one of my favorite comic books. Whenever it comes out, it's the first one I want to read in the pile because it does really adhere to Simon and Kirby's vision. You're using the old villains and everything, and they play it straight. The two heroes, Fighting American and Speedboy, um, and the villains are just so over the top. It reminds me a lot of the old Batman TV show. And yeah, that's that's lovely. the charm of it, you know. The, the villains are threatening; they are really evil, but they're also really crazy and have crazy names. But the the charm is that uh, Fighting American is an upstanding 1950s value American, and Speed Boy is just like, gosh, wow, gee. And he's but he really kind of likes some of the uh, the clothing that the ladies wear in the uh, 21st century. Oh, yeah. He seems to be enjoying this quite a bit. <laughs> Well, that, that, that's the great thing. I think that's one of the things that uh, Gordon and I talked about was the idea that you'd, you'd have these two characters. You've got this young kid, uh, you know, he's a teenager, and suddenly, you know, this insanely sexualized world we live in, we live in now. I mean, you, you know, you can imagine what it must be, it must be like for a 15, you know, 1950s teenager to be in 21st century. It would just be, it'd blow your mind. You, you'd never want to leave. It'd be like, whereas you can imagine that someone like Fighting American brought the 1950s in, into our world would sort of harbor the desire to get home as soon as possible. <laughs> You know, because it, because things would have changed beyond. You know, they, they always say, don't they, that the older you get, that you know, you don't. Things like technology become a problem. The older you get, you don't like new technology. You know, I, I personally can't stand um, touchstone phones. Um, I don't like them. I, I like, you know, I, I have real problems with. Them. Whereas my my son, who's fourteen, he he handles this like an expert. You know, I see him flicking between iPads and his telephone, and and you know, he's he's he just seems like he plays he plays video games where he's talking to his friends. He's got his phone on the side, and he's also watching uh, Vine clips on on uh, YouTube simultaneously while he's playing video games. I'm just, I don't understand the mental capacity. So I think that's the same thing for for, for Speedboy and Fighting American. Speedboy is a is a 1950s teenager who suddenly you know gets gets given the cookie jar and he can't believe it, and you know he loves it, and it, it's just too much for him. And 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 the idea behind Fighting American was that. The idea was he was a 1950s uh, upstanding American citizen. Uh, you know, he, he was he was Dudley Do Right, but as far as he's concerned, he's going home. So he's treating this like a holiday. So he's not going to change. He's not he's not changing. None of us change when we go on holiday. So he's not he's not intending to do anything. He's just he's there. He's doing his job, and one day he'll be going home. You know, little does he know that he ain't going home. Well, for years, it's not for a very long time. So that was that was that was that was the, the main starting point, which was you know. Um, how would someone from the 1950s react to this world? You know, we have one person who embraces it and you have another guy who sort of is trying to understand the difference and trying to understand why it's not, it's not PC to, uh, you know, to ask, to ask the women in the office to make you a cup of coffee, honey, that sort of thing, you know? The art team is incredible. Uh, Duke Mighton and PC De La Fuente, they really capture the look of Kirby's early art from the 40s and 50s. Uh, how did you manage to find them? They are fantastic. <laughs> 
Okay, well, well, Duke, um, Duke is, is someone that I knew back in my back way back in the days when I was drawing the driver uh, of the Toxic. He was he was an artist that Pat Mills had found at a comic convention, and Duke started out drawing a strip called uh, Accident Man for um, for Toxic that was written by Pat Mills and Tony Skinner. They'd written it and he drew it, and then after that he went on to do uh, I think it was Bratz Bazaar for um, for it, and then he sort of disappeared. Uh, and I, I bump into him, you know, at the odd, odd convention and everything. And then a couple of years ago, before, well, in fact, it wasn't. It was just before Fight American started off. He got in contact. He was then working for. He was now working for a Sydney-based a games company. He was he was um, in charge of the art team at Sydney-based, and he was working on on this new video game that that incorporated his artwork, and it was just staggeringly good. Uh, it just blew me away. It was sort of it was like a racing game where you're, you're racing through this bizarre futuristic uh, landscape of sewers and cities and you're shooting um shooting stuff on the back of a motorbike but it's all done in in um like his artwork and it's all i can't remember the term of it now but it's, it's using like cartoon artwork rather than the rendered 3d models but it's all done using his stuff uh, and i loved it and um when the fighting american came out we were looking at different artists and, and i i was really keen that we found i wanted an iconic artist i didn't want a straightforward superhero artist i want somebody who would be as iconic in his own way as jack kirby had been but I didn't want someone that would mimic Jack Kirby. I really didn't want that. I wanted someone who would, who would have an unusual style of drawing that, that was as iconic in its own way as Jack Kirby. And so for me, Duke was almost like a no-brainer. It just, it just made total sense. Uh, and so he came on board. And uh, uh, De Puente, he was, he was a, a Spanish artist who... Uh, I do a lot of work with Spanish artists. Um, uh, uh, I do a lot of work with, with a Spanish agency. And um, De Fuente, he sent me his work and I really liked it. And there just came a point where I needed someone who could help Duke out. And um, I got him, got him on board. And, and the great thing was that his artwork and Duke's are insanely very similar. And I hadn't expected that. You know, I, I was worried that there might be a big change, but there isn't. You can actually read the comic and you don't, you're not really aware of the fact you just change from one artist to another. I think that's, that's worked quite well. So De Fuente was, was a very good choice. But now I've changed artist again. I've got the artist Andy Tong, who's writing the, the second arc. He's going to do all four issues. Uh, now Andy Tong has done stuff for us before. Uh, he did Tekken. He's got a, a whole new style, and it's just, it's just fantastic. It's just, it's just amazing. I, I, yeah, like I say, I just, every time I do, I, you know, I look at one of these issues, I'm just, I'm just delighted. It's just, uh, it's heaven. Next arc's coming out in March, is that right you said? Yes, it is. Yes, it's called the ties that bind, uh, and it's basically just carrying on what's what's happened. It starts off almost uh, almost a minute after this first arc, the first four issues ended. It's the, a whole new self-contained four issue, but it's carrying the story on. So it's all part of the the universe that we're developing, and uh, there's some there's some nice surprises in it. There's, there's some. I think what I love about it is that is that it makes me laugh out loud when I'm reading the scripts. I, I just can't believe how funny it is, and I, I keep sort of. Uh, you know, even though I know what's coming, I read them and I'm, I'm Gordon makes you burst out laughing. Uh, so there's some very funny stuff. But, you know, like, as you've noticed, the humor is offset by the fact that it's also it's not a funny book. You know, it's not all about gags. There is a proper story. There is a proper art going on. And there is there are, there are things that we're touching on. And, and there's things that Gordon wants to talk about. And I think we get that in there. But we're doing it with humor. And we're doing it uh, with, I think, an obvious passion for it. You know, I mean, I, I think that, that, that this is definitely a homage to what uh, Simon and Kirby did. But it's also taking it on. And the other thing also is that we're, we're on the verge now of having done more issues of this new one than Kirby and Simon. Simon did with their original six issue run, which is also very exciting. Is there an unpublished issue of Fighting American? I know that they came back in the 60s as a reprint in 66 through Harvey Comics. Was there a second one after that? Do you recall? 
I know that wasn't there because it's unusual. There was a DC six issue DC series of Fighting American. I can't remember who drew that, but it's uh, he was basically in the present. I don't think it was original Fighting American. And obviously there was Rob Liefeld oh, yes. did, did a Fighting American book. Um, so he he did his, uh, and I think that that was another wasn't that another modern day Fighting American? It was. I think that was Awesome Entertainment that they published Fighting American. Uh, Rob Liefeld worked on. I studiously avoided reading both of those because I didn't want to. Because as far as I was concerned, the Fighting American that we were dealing with was the original one. So it didn't matter what happened to him in the 70s or in, in the Rob Liefeld issue because that wasn't part of the continuity that I was robbing from, if that makes sense. You know, it was sort of I could just ignore them completely. Well, I'm glad you did because that's what drew me to the <laughs> book. No, honestly, because I like to see the heroes in the manner that they were meant to be portrayed, that the character is still there. That is not so radically yes. different. And the outfit's still the same. He just came from the 50s, so he looks yes. the same. And when it changes radically to something modern, especially... Back in the 90s, it looks too dated. Yeah, absolutely right. He's such a character of this time. I mean, his original uniform or his outfit, it's so 1950s that that's one of the great things about sticking him in the present is, is I, I keep saying that I think this would make a great film. So if there's any, any Hollywood film producers desperately looking for superhero comics that they can turn into movies, may I put my hand in the ring for Fighting American? Because I think the idea of bringing a, a hero from the 50s into the present and, and presenting it that way, not, not, not Captain America, because... You know, I know he's done the same thing, but but for him, it, it was against his will. It was an accident, you know, and all the rest. And he's doing his best to fit into the present. But our one is is gloriously unreconstructed and from the 1950s. And I think that's what makes him separate. And if you're going to do that, then you've got to keep the costume the same. You can't give him a, a, an amazingly new one. Likewise, we've been very careful not to bulk him up, not to make him like a modern day superhero. You know, our one is very athletic he's very sort of uh, he's physical but he's not muscle bound he's sort of athletic and and um statuesque. another book coming up that i was very excited to read about the prisoner oh yes and peter milligan's gonna work <laughs> on that that's right yes yes peter milligan's writing that has been drawn by colin lorimer and the uh, coloring is by joanne uh lafuente who's colin's uh, colorist of choice yeah that's a four book miniseries which we're hoping uh if, if it proves successful that will lead into uh, another four that we see and so on and so forth you know keep doing them as, as miniseries and, and not necessarily i mean it's, it's very weird the prisoner is an unusual one I'm, I'm a big fan of the original show i think the comic it's set in the present uh, but it, the village is the village that you remember from the tv show it's very strange we're sort of i can't it's, it's such a hard one to explain because the story behind it makes total sense but the actual the mechanics of it are, are mysterious. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's very prisoner-esque in that respect, in that relationship. This isn't a reimagining. It's not a, a, um, a relaunch. This is still the village because they talk about the fact that one other person managed to escape from the village. So we do reference the original number six, but, you know, there's other stuff going on. So it's, it's a very interesting book to work on. I'm very excited about that one. Uh, me too. I'm looking forward to it very much. As we get towards the end of the interview here, I'd like to ask my guests questions. I ask them all the same questions. But before I get to that, you know, you've done a lot of work on these classic books. Do you have any in your own collection of, say, Fighting American or Dan Dare that you bought as part of your research and just to have for fun? <laughs> um, Dan Dare, yeah. Uh, uh, Dan Dare, definitely. Uh, Fighting American, not so, because I'm odd in, in, in the fact that I love old vintage comics, but I like books. Mm. I'm a book collector. Um, so, what I love about Dan Dare is that, that way back in the day, there was uh, a series of books published by a company called Hawk who brought out these great big actual size uh, facsimile editions of the, of the Eagle comic with Dan Dare, and they reprinted them. And those are lovely. They're very hard to find. So, I've got, I've got nearly a full set of those. But the odd thing is, is the ones that we're doing now, they're actually better quality because we're actually digitally remastering the pages. And I've got an amazing guy called Des Shaw who also edits the uh, Spaceship Away, which is the Dando Online uh, website. He, he digitally remasters these pages for me. And his, his work is 
It's staggering. I, I, honestly, it, it blows me away. It blows me away. Every time he sends in, he sends in like, um, uh, remastered stuff, I'm, I'm staggered by it. I can't believe it. So I love those. I've got lots of Dan Dare, uh, lots of Dan Bader books. When it comes to Fighting American, I don't have anything in the Fighting American, nothing in my collection. I do have some unusual bits of Mandrake, the magician uh, stuff. Uh, Lon Mandrake, the magician's son, he sent me, um, it's wonderful, he sent me some old um, uh, bill posters from his dad when his dad was touring back in the 1950s, which he sent me, which I was so honoured to receive. That was wonderful. And he also sent me his old agent's listing for him, which is a double-sided sheet that has photographs of, uh, of Lon doing his magic tricks along with little clippings and then he's got his details and I've got a copy of that which is fantastic so I've got little things like that little mementos which, which I like to keep they all sit in my plan chest at home and so there'll be a real pain for my children when I'm dead and they have to clean out my plan chest <laughs> <laughs> so you know so that's that really that's what I've got in, in terms of that um, and I've got a few other things you know some of the books I've done along, along the years if I've gone out and bought if I've bought material for the books I've, I've edited and I've kept that so I've got a I did a collection of, of another newspaper strip called Jane, which was a very famous British newspaper strip in the war. And she was very unusual because she came out during the, uh, during the initial invasion of Europe after the D-Day Normandy landings. And uh, she, was, she was notorious for always losing her clothing. And this, you know, so obviously you can imagine the strip was 1940s. And there's a very famous strip where she gets completely naked for the first time, where she's in the bath and the bath gets tipped up and she falls out of the bath and she runs through a room full of soldiers completely naked. Now it's said, now this probably isn't true, it said that the day that Jane became completely naked, the British Fifth Army advanced five miles. So it was supposed to be a massive uh, propaganda coup. Not only that, but Winston Churchill himself said that she was Britain's best secret weapon. So uh, I've got uh, when I when I bought out a book of her uh, a book of her material for Titan Books, um, I discovered all this material that hadn't been published in sixty years, which were a series of books that the artist Norman Pett, who was the artist of Jane, he produced, and they were little colour comic books. With, with actual colour newspaper, not newspaper, but actual comic, colour comic strips and pin-up art featuring Jane. Now, this hadn't been seen for 60 years, so I, I managed to find all of the books and I bought them and I've got those. Those are like, you know, cream of my collection. I, I love those books. Uh, so, yeah, little mementos, definitely. I think, yeah, I think you do. You keep little mementos. And obviously, I've got a copy of all the books I've worked on because I, I'm proud of them. I sort of, you know, I put a lot of love into them. I, I'm, I'm very, I get very emotional about them, uh, especially the vintage books because um, I really feel that, that you know, I'm now part of the Dan Day universe. I'm now part of the Flash Gordon universe and the Mandrake. And that, that means something to me. I sort of feel like I'm helping to preserve this stuff for, for future generations. And, and that means a lot to me. I sort of feel, I feel very proud to be a part of it. I'm not grandstanding, but I, I'm honored to be a part of it. And it, it gives me a real sense of pride. I'm, I'm doing something of, of value. <laughs> I do appreciate the care you're taking with these books because they are wonderful. And I really enjoy Thank reading them. They do rise to the top of the pile of my books. Uh, oh, I'm really pleased to hear it. My final questions, and these are the ones I ask all my guests, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? <laughs> okay, there's, there's three things I do for rest and relaxation. Uh, one is uh, I, I am obsessed with the cinema. I go to cinema um, at least twice a week, and I write a blog where I, I review films, but not necessarily in a sensible way. I tend to get quite angry if it's a bad film. So I, I do a blog called Seeing Films So You Don't Have To. I think it's called that where I write about all the, uh, you know, that, that week's film that I've seen. And then I do a yearly roundup. So that's one of the things I do. The other thing I like to do, uh, <laughs> I like to write and draw my own comic strips. Uh, so I have a character that I, that I do called Psycho Gran. That's my first cartoon character. I'm still drawing her now. And uh, she's currently published by David Lloyd and his digital comic Aces Weekly. Uh, and I'm doing, uh, and then after I've, I've got enough material, uh, Titan then publish her in her own digital comic. And then I do another one, <laughs> I do another, I do two other comics. 
One's called David Leach Conquer the Universe, and it's my biography, autobiography, about, about how I conquered the universe. I'm working on issue three. It's going to be a full movie series. I'm working on issue three. Issue one was all black and white. Issue two was two color. Issue three will be three color, and issue four will be full color. And each one is, it's, it's all total lies, but it's, all, it's published by all true comics, so everything they say is true. So in issue one, I fight Godzilla. And issue two is how I went into outer space, fought a space alien, and met my wife. But it's all true because they never lie. And then I do Psychogram Verses, which is a pin-up book of Psychogram beating up superheroes. That's all she does. So page one has her kicking Superman right in the unmentionables. And then things like Batman getting his nipples tweaked, uh, aliens kicked in the, uh, in the um, you know, the... <laughs> kicked in the unmentionables again. A lot of people get kicked in the unmentionables, which I, I find immensely funny. I'm always reminded of that brilliant line from The Simpsons where Moman gets a football kicked into his, into his groin and he falls over sideways and says, oh, my groin, which just makes me weep with tears every time I think about it. Um, so, yeah, so it, when I'm not working on comics, I go home and I work on comics and I read and I read and I go to the cinema uh, and I try and keep busy. Um, I also like cycling. I love cycling. Uh, I got on a real health kick. Um, uh, I started last year. In fact, another anniversary. This, this is my anniversary of, of being on a fanatical health kick. So in the last year, I've lost five stone of weight, which is uh, 80-odd pounds of weight. Um, I think, yeah, that's not bad. Good for you. Uh, so we're doing that. Thank you. Uh, I feel a lot better for it. Um, yeah, so um, there we are. Cy- cycling, cinema, making comics. I'm spending time with my family. I better mention that, haven't I? I, 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 I and spending time with my family. Of course. So not, not, you know, not fun. But I think mainly, I think I, I, I would hazard the opinion, everyone you talk to probably does something similar. That I think the thing about comics is that even if you work in comics, it's not just a job. It's something that completely absorbs you. It's in every aspect of your life, you know. Uh, and the, what, the one I was asked recently what, what I like most about making comics, uh, and I just said it's just the art of making them. It's the, it's the act of sitting there coming up with an idea and then taking that idea and going right through to the end. It's just there's no aspect of it which isn't, exhilarating which isn't just sort of uh, joyous it, it, it's um i can't think of anything else that can make you work all night long and, and half your brain is begging for you to stop so you can get some sleep because you've got to go to work the next day and the other half is going i can't i'm enjoying this too much i mean that's just incredible you know uh, i love it i love it if you were stuck on a deserted island what would be the one book that you'd want to have with you if you could only have the one book can i have 14 books and i'll tell you exactly what they all are right now this second without even having to think about it okay go ahead it's the entire gemstone hard case slip case edition of the EC box sets, which I have. It took me 25 years to collect. And I was actually talking to, the, talking to my wife about this at the weekend because we were talking about what's the one thing you would save in a fire. And I said, I'd go in and I'd save all my EC box sets because I truly, truly love the EC box books. I just, I, I couldn't think of one. And if I tried to, I'd get the title wrong. But I've, I've got them all and I love them all. And, and I, I consider them to be the pinnacle of what comics can produce. And I love things like, you know, all the, all the big main comics that we could talk for hours about. I love all those, but there's something about those EC books, the fact that they were produced back in the fifties, the fact that they were so groundbreaking, it, it, it beggars belief that, that and it, I find it such a, it's so sad to think of what we could have had as an industry. If it hadn't been for the, that bloody, what's his name, Wernham, bringing up Seduction of the Innocent, and we hadn't had the comic code brought in. Just think what we're producing now. I mean, my God, EC Comics are bringing out books that, that were staggering. I know after, these, after they brought in the comic code, they managed to bring out things like psychoanalysis. I mean, what an incredible idea for a comic, the idea that for four issues you'd watch different characters going through psychoanalysis. That was written back in the 50s. I don't think we've come even close to, to recapturing just the genius of that time. And I love those books. So if, if there was... Oh, having said that, uh, there's also... T- 
there's also Tintin. I, I'd have to go back and get my Tintin books. Asterix, I, I couldn't leave the Asterix behind. I'd have to go back for those. I, I'm going to go on like this for hours until you stop me. There's all the Giles annuals. Giles, I'd have to go back and get all 36 Giles annuals. Giles is a, is a British cartoonist. He was a great influence for me as a kid. I'd have to run back in then and get, and get my Watchmen. I love the Watchmen and V for the I'd have to go back for those. And then I'd just be going back and forth. By the time the fire brigade finally turned up, most of my book collection would be outside on the lawn. <laughs> You're going to need another island just for all the books. <laughs> I, I'm going to. I'm going to. I need a new room for all my books. It's, it's, it's madness. So I couldn't take just one book because there's too many that are important. I could. I tell you. I tell you what I can do. Right. This is as close as I can get to actually answering your question. There are three books in my collection which have profound importance to me. Okay. And they're books that I still have the originals when I have them. So the very first is a Tintin book called Tintin and King Otica Scepter, which was given to me when I was six years old by a customer of my mother. My mother used to be a dressmaker. She used to make dresses for ladies. And this lady gave me a hardback copy of Tintin King Otica Scepter to read to keep me occupied while my mum and her were, were working on this dress. And I still have that book. And that book wow. is, just means so much to me. The next book is, is a British annual. So we have a tradition in this country of every Christmas, they bring out hardback annuals of, of comic books. And I have a Beano annual from 1972, which I bought with my own money by saving up all my bus fare to go to school. So I used to be given bus fare to go to school. And I saved all that money by walking to school until I had enough to go into the shop and buy the book for Christmas myself with my own money. But before I'd done that, I went into that shop every single day and read that book from cover to cover. So when I finally came to buy it, I knew that book back to front, but I still have that book now to this day those are probably the two most important coin books i have in my um, in my life because they had such a profound influence on me and the final book is, is a paperback it's a paperback called dracula's gold which was written back in the 1970s and it's part of a series i'm a big fan of men's action adventure and we could spend another two hours just talking about the destroyer novels and the executioner and the penetrator and the death merchant because i love this stuff to, like crazy but the, one of the ones I have is Dracula's Gold, which I was given when I was way too young to understand it, like when I was about nine years old. And I was just obsessed with the cover. And I have a very visual imagination. That book, um, when I finally got around to reading it, wasn't very good, but it didn't matter. It was the idea behind it that was significant. So those are the three books that I would go back again and rescue from the same fire that's happening. <laughs> Final question. What is your beverage of choice? When you're resting and relaxing. Uh, okay, my beverage of choice is a pint of iced tap water and lime cordial with no added sugar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that. It's the, uh, you can change that with soda water. I like soda water. Uh, that's lovely. But it's got to be lime cordial and it is the most refreshing drink on the planet. Absolutely divine. Love it. Well, David, thank you for being on the show. And I'll tell you, uh, I'll have to have you on again because we just scratched the surface. There's so much we can cover. I would love to, whenever you, whenever you want to. I, I'm, as you might have guessed, I'm more than happy to talk and waffle for Britain. Uh, I represent the entire country in that. I actually have a little memo from the Prime Minister that says I'm there to talk for every, anything to do. Anything you want to know about, about the entire British culture, I can answer any question. If I can't, my brother can. Which is a gag I'm stealing from, from War of the Worlds, which is uh, my favourite Tom Cruise gag. I don't know if you remember that one, but it's very funny. There's a great gag in War of the Worlds, and Tom Cruise is talking to his daughter, and uh, he says to her, Look, you know, uh, I know everything there is to know. If I don't, my brother does. And she says, okay. And she asks him a question. He goes, I don't know, you have to ask my brother, which I think is fantastic. I, lo I love that gag. I love that film. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd love to come back. Uh, if you want me on, that'd be great. We can talk about other stuff. Great. Thank you so much for being Thank on Creative Talks. My pleasure. And just a reminder, we have a contest just for fun. 
Follow me and tweet your favorite episode so far, your favorite interview. Mention the episode number and the guest that I interviewed. And tag it at Creator Talks Pod. Prizes include Marvel Comics Presents from 1989, number 23 with a story about the Black Panther, and also a copy of Madman Frankenstein In Your Face 3D Special by the All Reds. And I will also throw in a Creator Talks sticker. Contest ends February 28th at 11.59 p.m., and I will announce the winner on March 1st. Coming up on the next Creator Talks, Johnny Christmas. He is the writer and artist of Firebug, being published by Image Comics. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot Devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and -and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback. You can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.